All right, so we're going to spend this morning, tonight, and next Sunday morning. And next Sunday morning will be a little different um, because uh, next Sunday morning, I want to preach about why God allows evil things. And we see at the end of this chapter, there's just one statement made, and it's one of those ominous statements. It might remind you when you were a kid and you were really bad, really, really bad. Not like really bad, like that made your mom deal with you harshly, but I mean like really, really bad where your mom said, I'm not dealing with this. You're going to deal with your dad, right? At the end of 2 Samuel 11, the very last verse the very last line of the verse, verse 27, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now, we didn't need to be told that. We knew that. But God tells us anyway. He weighs in on it. And uh, the question that comes up with that is he knew what David did. It displeased him what David did. So why didn't God stop him? It cost a man his life. Not just his marriage. His life. Why didn't God stop it? But I'm not going to deal with that tonight. I'm going to talk about that next Sunday in the morning service. I just want you to know that the uh, the 40 lashes save one will be over after tonight, all right? Um, well, I mean, until we get to chapter 12, where we also have more lashes. But um, anyway, tonight I want to preach to you, He that covereth his sin, and I want to preach from verses 6 through 25. Would you stand with me, and we'll read the passage together. 2 Samuel 11, beginning in verse 6, reading down through verse 25. These are the words of God. And David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah was coming to him, David demanded of him how Joab did, and how the people did, and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, Go down to thy house and wash thy feet. And Uriah departed out of the king's house, and there followed him a mess of meat from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and went not down to his house. And when they had told David, saying, Uriah went not down unto his house, David said unto Uriah, Camest thou not from thy journey? Why then didst thou not go down unto thine house? And Uriah said unto David, The ark and Israel and Judah abide in tents. And my lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go into mine house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As thou livest and as thy soul liveth, I will not do this thing. And David said to Uriah, Tarry here today also, and tomorrow I will let thee depart. So Uriah abode in Jerusalem that day and the morrow. And when David had called him, he did eat and drink before him. And he made him drunk, and then even he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but went not down to his house. And it came to pass in the morning 
And David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set ye Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle, and retire ye from him, that he may be smitten and die. And it came to pass when Joab observed the city that he assigned Uriah unto a place where he knew that valiant men were. And the men of the city went out and fought with Joab, and there fell some of the people of the servants of David, and Uriah the Hittite died also. Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war, and charged the messenger, saying, When thou hast made an end of telling the matters of the war unto the king, and if so be that the king's wrath arise, and he say unto thee, Wherefore approached ye so nigh unto the city when ye did fight? Knew ye not that they would shoot him from the wall? Who smote Abimelech, the son of Jerubesheth? Did not a woman cast a piece of a millstone upon him for the wall that he died in Thebes? Why went ye nigh the wall? Then say thou, thy servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and showed David all that Joab had sent him for. And the messenger said unto David, Surely the men prevailed against us, and came not out unto us, came out unto us into the field, and we were upon them even unto the entering of the gates. And the shooters shot from off the wall upon thy servants, and some of the king's servants be dead, and thy servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And David said unto the messenger, Thus shalt thou say unto Joab, Let not this thing displease thee, for the sword devoureth one as well as another. Make thy battle more strong against the city, and overthrow it, and encourage thou him. Let's pray. O Lord, as we look at this sad chapter in the Bible, in the life of David, what a tragedy. But Lord, I pray that we would also be wary that we would be sober and vigilant, that we would recognize the many ways that Satan attacks us and seeks to overthrow us, the way that he would like to ruin us as well. And I pray that none of us would be presumptuous. I pray that none of us would rise up in proud wrath as we consider such a sin as this, that we would not be conceited or arrogant or allow ourselves ever to think that that was David and this is not something I would do. I pray that we would recognize that there is in every one of us the same heart that was in the heart of David and in every one of us the capacity to do shocking and terrible sins. And I pray that we would be very vigilant and very careful and that we would appeal to you and that we would put on the armor that you provided for us and that we would be mindful of your blessed Holy Spirit who indwells us and that we would fight and prevail and overcome the wicked one in our lives. And I pray that we would support each other, that there wouldn't be that spirit of rivalry in our midst that causes us to scrutinize and to look and to uh, really to uh, sit in judgment of each other, but rather that there would be uh, friendship, that we would pull together, that we would strive together for the faith of the gospel. 
and that your name would be praised, that we would be true followers of Christ. Please help me as I preach, Lord, that I could make the message clear, that we would see the point in it and what we ought to do. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Self-preservation might be one of our strongest impulses. It drives us to eat when we aren't hungry, to exercise when we don't feel like it, when it hurts. It pushes us to take medicine that tastes terrible, and it has terrible side effects as well. Have you ever noticed the side effects on the medicines that you take? It'll turn you into a green booger lips monster. Um, if you take this for long enough, uh, you know, you won't need a Halloween costume uh, anymore. It pushes us, it makes us spend money on things like insurance. I mean, really, you are just throwing your money, throwing your money at a future problem that you hope will never happen. It makes you pay good money for doctor visits and for dental care. Self-preservation will make a man cut off his own arm so that he can survive when his hand gets trapped in between a rock and a hard place. You ever felt that guy? It was a number of years ago now, um, but he took out a pocket knife. It wasn't a real sharp one, as I recall, and he sawed his arm off because he was going to die if he didn't die. I still think I would have just died. <laughs> I'm just not sure I could have done that. Self-preservation will make a man fight to stay alive when he has nothing to live for. When O.J. Simpson killed his ex-wife and her friend, he spent all of his money and ruined his reputation, fighting just to stay out of prison. And when David committed adultery with Bathsheba, he became consumed with covering his sin, relentless in his quest to conceal it. You wonder about that, don't you? I mean, he is the king. And, and in that day especially, it's not like, you know, there would have been an impeachment inquiry, right? Um, of King David. You wonder what, what would people have done had they known if David had let that out? What would have been the consequence for him? He was the king. He could could very easily have made the politician statement, you know, crimes were committed even by me, and distance himself from it, admitted to it without admitting to it, not taking responsibility for it. He could have just said, yeah, I'm the king. What you going to do about it? You would think he could have shrugged this one away, dismissed Bathsheba as a gold digger, and gone on his way. What could be done to the king when he sent? But the truth is that David, like anyone who falls into scandalous, willful, wicked sin, David was afraid. And you know that the big deal when, when we fall into scandal and disgrace, the big fear is of the unknown. 
what will be the consequences? And you know, it's one of the things, um, in fact, I think I need to get the book and put it in the bookstore because I reference it all the time. Thomas Brooks' book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And it talks about how <clears throat> Satan will bait the hook, um, show the bait and hide the hook. And he talks about how Satan will tell you when you are in pursuit of a sin, that forgiveness is easy to obtain, but then after you've committed the sin, will tell you that forgiveness is impossible to obtain. Satan doesn't fight fair. He doesn't tell the truth unless the truth is necessary to his cause. So he will lie about the sin, he will lie about the results, he will tell you that you can get away with it. He will tell you that people will not think that badly of you or that people will understand the temptations that there must be for King. But then when you've committed the sin, he will threaten you with every kind of dire consequence. He will tell you that no one will understand, no one will forgive you, no one will let you go. No one, you will never live this down. And so it's not surprising that a person would be terrified of the results if the secret gets out. Bathsheba was pregnant. Can't be hidden. It won't just be our little secret. She was not pregnant when her husband went off to war. The Bible makes that abundantly clear because she had taken a ritual bath, which is taken by a woman after her time. Uriah would know that he was not the father. He was away at war, a loyal soldier. Maybe, you know, he's a loyal soldier. Maybe he wouldn't say anything. Maybe he would just look the other way. But David couldn't take that chance. He couldn't, or maybe we should say he wouldn't take that chance. Risk exposure, tarnishing the reputation that he had worked so hard to build that was lost in one night's indiscretion. What follows in this chapter is the desperate attempt of a guilty man to hide his sin. One of the most irrational things in the world. Thinking that you can hide your sin. <clears throat> but none of us are unfamiliar with the desire to conceal a sin. We know that the eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good. We know that David's son Solomon is the one who taught us that. We know that David himself knew that and expressed it more eloquently than anyone else in Scripture. Whither shall I go from my presence? And whither shall I whither shall I go from my spirit? Or whither shall I flee 
to my presence. If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from me, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me, listen to this, in my mother's womb. <coughs> I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret. Curious, curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. And in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. Clearly David is expressing the reality that the Lord sees the baby when it is conceived. There's no hiding this. There's no hiding this from the one who matters. From the one who matters. Isn't it interesting, though, that we, even as we know that the one who matters sees it, we still will conceal it from people who don't matter. I mean, they do, but not ultimately. And yet, that is exactly what David does here. David goes to extreme lengths, not just extreme lengths, he goes to extremely wicked lengths in order to cover his sin. The sin that he committed in his attempt to cover his sin was a greater sin than the sin that he was trying to conceal. Oh, I know, you know, we can talk about the difference between adultery and murder. And certainly in our day and age, everything is reversed. In, in, in David's day, as in Abraham's, um, murder would have been looked at the way we look at adultery today. And adultery would have been looked at the way we look at murder today. So today, if you commit adultery, that's scandal. That's disgrace. If you commit murder, that's prison. In Abraham's day, that's what, partly why and probably there are other motivations, but partly why Abraham told his wife to tell them that you're my sister. Because for them, adultery was unthinkable, but murder was not, and his life wouldn't be worth two cents if they thought that killing him, they could have his wife. 
Even so for David, the greater sin was the adultery, and yet, you have to think, all right? David commits adultery with Bathsheba. I pointed out to you this morning, the Bible doesn't say anything about Bathsheba's feelings, about David's feelings, doesn't say a word, doesn't say a word about whether there was any affection between the two of them. It's just two adults. I'm not downplaying it, but it's two adults, both of them sinning. But Uriah was innocent. From anything that we read here in this passage, we have no reason to think that Uriah had any idea what had happened, what had taken place, what David was trying to do to him. The deception, the betrayal, the murder. What a horrible, horrible thing that David did. Trying to save himself from disgrace. David knew what God knew. It demonstrates the way we can know something to be true and live as if it weren't. That we can hold two contradictory ideas in mind all at the same time. Because we know that God sees and that God, what God sees is what really matters. But we will only be concerned about what other people know, what other people see. We know that God is watching. We know that he sees. We know that his eyes are in every place beholding the evil and the good. And then we go ahead and do what he has forbidden. We go ahead and do it though we know it offends him. Though it causes animosity between us and God. And we'll do it as if God doesn't see, as if God doesn't know, as if God doesn't care. It is, in fact, the paradox of sanctification. Because when I'm preaching this, I know that every person here has experience with this very thing, where we know what we're about to do, what we want to do here is wrong to do. We know it. Doesn't have to be sexual. See, and that's the thing when you start preaching in general about sin is that quite often we think it's only talking about this one thing. He can only be talking about that. No, there are many things that we know. We know it's wrong. We know it. And we know we shouldn't do it, but we are so drawn to it. So we want to. And so we forget we forget about the God who sees, the God who knows, and we do it anyway, and then when we have done it, we worry what other people might find out and what they might think, and we carefully conceal it. All the while, the one who really matters is offended is sinned against. So much of the battle of sanctification would be won 
if we would live each and every day as if God were scrutinizing every thought, every word, every deed. But we don't. And when we don't, we add to our sin by hiding it. You realize that when you hide your sin, you are saying that the opinion of men matters more to me than the opinion of God. Because God teaches you not to cover your sin. He that covereth the sin, the Bible says, shall not prosper. But whoso confesseth and forsaketh it shall have mercy. This is what God wants from you. But instead, we worry about people and don't worry about God. We act as if the judgment of men matters more than the judgment of God, as if we're more frightened of the poor opinion that men might have of us than, of, than we are of God's wrath against our sin. That's why we hide our sin when God teaches us to confess it and forsake it. Driven by fear of exposure, David fought for control when he should have fallen on his face before the God he forgot. But his sin was already exposed to the one who sees, to the one who knows. The illusion of control brought the sensation of success when Uriah died. <coughs> but God was displeased. I want to point out to you then three things. Consider, first of all, the shame, which makes us want to cover the sin. Then the desperation of David, who won't stop until he's covered it up. And then finally, the failure in David's success, because his sin will find him out. These three things, the shame of sin, first of all. Now, the chapter doesn't mention emotion anywhere. Emotion is not discussed. Feelings are not discussed in this chapter at all. No insight whatsoever into the sin. Look at, again, verse 5. And the woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I am a child. Now, this is, this is what you see in this chapter. You see action. Action. It's all action. David sees Bathsheba, he sends for her, he takes her, he lays with her, she returns, she sends a message. And then in verse 6, you see that David springs to action once again. And David sent to Joab saying, send me Uriah the Hittite. We are not told what David felt when he heard the news that Bathsheba was with child. What kind of thoughts went through his head? Did he get nervous? Did he get shaky? Did he did he did his knees get weak? Did he did he tremble? Did his heart sink? Did he get sick to his stomach? The Bible doesn't tell us any of that. We aren't told whether he lost sleep or felt afraid or felt sick 
We don't know if he washed his hands obsessively or jumped at shadows. But we see from his behavior that David immediately developed a plan for dealing with the Bathsheba problem. Now, <clears throat> we tend to treat shame as if it were a bad thing. But shame plays an important role in our lives, both in restraining us from evil things and by informing us when a thing we have done is evil. Shame is a wonderful, just like, just like pain. You know, pain is, we look at pain like it's a bad thing. Um, my wife and I, a few years ago, read a book, it's a really good book, um, and it's, it's, I can't remember the name of it, and I can't remember the author's name either, but it was a good book. Trust me on it, it was a great book. But the author went through, and he had spent some time at a leper colony, and the thing about leprosy is that it fills your nerve endings so that you don't feel pain. He said that there were literally people who scratched their face, just kind of, you know how you start messing with your face, and scratch their face, like scratch skin and flesh off their cheek. Because they scratched it, they couldn't feel it. And they would wound themselves and damage themselves. And he pointed out the fact that pain itself has a wonderful warning system for your body. You know, my doctor used to tell me, you know what to do when, when you do something, like you use your arm a certain way and it hurts, you know what to do? I said, no, because I was a kid. He said, stop doing it. That your body is telling you, don't do that. Now, that's, you know, that's why some of us don't work out, because right? it hurts. Every time my body is saying, don't do that. I know they say, you know, uh, pain is weakness leaving the body, but I saw that guy, he got his leg blown off, and I'm pretty sure it wasn't weakness leaving his body when that happened. But anyway, where was I? Shame has that same effect to warn you, to tell you this is not wise, this is not good, this is not right, you should not do this. And of course, shame is felt most intensely when it involves areas of scandal and disgrace, areas where you think, you believe that your reputation is going to be impacted, is going to be hurt, damaged by this thing, especially when whatever it is you did involves something immoral, something that points to a moral deficiency in you and in your life. Now that's the way shame works. So if you're trying to hide it or trying to conceal it, I like to tell people, you know, typically if you're doing something really good and someone comes on you, you know, like comes around the corner and you're doing something really great, you want them to know what you're doing. If someone comes around the corner and you real quick click off your computer, turn off the screen, slam shut the book you're reading, something like that, well, that would be an indication right there that you probably shouldn't be looking at that, probably shouldn't be reading that, probably shouldn't be doing that. Same thing if you're having a discussion. Now, you know, of course, if you're plotting out how to surprise someone for their birthday and they come around the corner and you immediately change the subject, well, that's one thing. But if, on the other hand, you're having a discussion that you should not be having that involves gossip, 
or criticism or slander or something along those lines and a person comes around the corner and you have to change the subject quickly, that would be an indication to you that you shouldn't have that conversation. You shouldn't pick it up when they leave the room. You shouldn't go back to it. That would be a mark that this is not the right thing for me to be doing. That's the benefit. That's the blessing of shame. It is, shame is a painful emotion that we feel when we're doing what we should not be doing. And this is a design feature. God gave us our conscience as the inner voice that tells us when a thing that we have done or are thinking about doing is likely to bring us into disgrace. Now it's obvious from David's desperate attempt to cover up his sin that he felt a great deal of shame for it. The Bible doesn't have to tell us that because we know it innately. We know it without being told. We know it. No one has to explain that to us. And I say that this is a good thing. The shame is a good thing because it tells us when we ought to repent and forsake what is wicked, what is evil, what is morally bad. But shame alone is not sufficient to bring you to repentance. You know, isn't it interesting that the Bible does not say that shame will bring you to repentance? What brings us to repentance is the goodness of God and not our shame. And that's the reason why, and I've seen this many, many times over, that when a person has fallen into disgraceful, shameful sin, and has felt that shame intensely, without repentance, that the, the result of that is that the person becomes hardened against God. Hardened against God. Because shame, though it is a kindness of God, like pain, shame does not drive him to repentance. And in David's case, in fact, we see that shame provoked him to even greater sin. It's a reminder to us that conscience alone is never enough to keep our feet on the right path. Our conscience, in fact, rises up in accusation against us. Apart from God's work of grace in our hearts, we will always respond badly to lust and sin. Even so, when people think they might get caught, they will take some pretty desperate steps. They'll turn vicious, hateful, will commit even worse sins to cover the sin that they think is going to cause the scandal or the disgrace. Even so, in this, we see the desperation of David. Again, another paradox here, because, and this is, this is the, the paradox I want to show you. It's very plain in the chapter when you look at it, when you see it. All right. But David is the one in control all throughout this chapter. David is the one in control. And the paradox is that he has lost control. He is the one in control, and he has lost control. Let me show you what I mean. 
When David sent messengers and took Bathsheba, he was the one in control. When she came in unto him and he lay with her, he was the one in control. When he sent to Joab and commanded him to send Uriah, David was the one in control. When Uriah came to David, in verse 7, David was the one in control. When David commanded Uriah to go down to his house and wash his feet, clearly an invitation for Uriah to enjoy a night with his wife, David was the one in control. And when there followed Uriah a mess of meat from the king, David was the one in control. When the gossips tell David that Uriah didn't end up going to his house, David is still in control. In verse 10, when David told Uriah to tarry here today also and tomorrow I will let thee depart, David is still in control. In verse 13, when David called Uriah to eat and drink before him, and when he made Uriah drunk, David is the one who's in control. And in verses 14 and 15, when David sent Joab, Uriah's death sentence, by Uriah's own hand, definitely David was in control. In verse 16, when Joab assigned Uriah to a place where he knew that valiant men were, David was the one who was in control. And in verse 17, when Uriah the Hittite died, David was the one in control. And yet, we start to see the way David's control over the situation is beginning to unravel. Or unraveling faster and faster. For sure, when David took Bathsheba and lay with her, and when she returned to her house, David was the one in control. But then, Bathsheba, Bathsheba conceived. And told David, sent and told David and said, I am with child. And that's where you see his control begin to unravel. Because David lost control right there. And for sure, when David sent for Uriah and demanded of him how Joab did, and how the people did, and how the war prospered. David was in control. But when David commanded Uriah to go down to his house and wash his feet, David was losing control. Because, now get this, Uriah is a loyal soldier of David. Uriah was a man accustomed to obeying orders. <clears throat> His king just gave him an order. Go spend the night with your wife. And sent him a mess of meat to make the night better. And Uriah disobeyed a direct order of David. David could, could control the situation. David could control the message. David could control what was happening around him, but David couldn't control when Bathsheba got pregnant and couldn't control when Uriah didn't go to his house. 
David is losing control. The narrator makes a point of the fact that Uriah did not go down to his house, did not obey what David said, and by the way, there were no consequences to Uriah for this disobedience. Now, I point out to you, as we go through 2 Samuel, you hear me point this out to you a number of times. Over and over, in each chapter, one of the things to do is to look for, look at the central point, which is usually around the middle of the chapter, and look for the things that are repeated. And I mentioned to you this morning that David's name is repeated, I think, 23 out of times out of 27 verses. Uriah's name is repeated uh, 20 times, I think, out of 27 verses. Uriah, when he's referred to, is referred to as Uriah the Hittite, which some have said um, or have suggested that it would have been harder for David to take Bathsheba if it had been Uriah the Israelite. Who knows on that? We can't say. But certainly the passage emphasizes Uriah's ethnicity as a Hittite over and over. Now there's something else that gets repeated Five times, in fact, in a handful of verses here, five times we are told, again, and it's repeated, that Uriah, who was commanded by David to go down to his house, did not go down to his house. I want you to notice this with me in verse 9. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and went not down to his house. Again in verse 10, and when they had told David, saying, Uriah went not down unto his house. A second time in verse 10, David said unto Uriah, Camest thou not from thy journey? Why then didst thou not go down unto thine house? In verse 11, Uriah graciously refuses. Shall I then go into mine house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife as thou livest and as thy soul liveth. I will not do this thing. Uriah openly refuses to obey David's order. Open. And then again in verse 13, when David had called him, he did eat and drink before him and he made him drunk and at even he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but went not down unto his house. Now this is, again, the master, the mastery of the storyteller story right here. He tells the story and he includes these details. So you're seeing David large and in charge and you're seeing his authority unraveling his control of the situation is, he's losing control of the situation. And when David confronted Uriah about this disobedience, Uriah gave him an answer that must have, must have, twisted a dagger in David's belly. Because when you read verse 11, you see the answer of a noble, noble man. The ark and Israel and Judah abide in tents. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are encamped in the open fields. 
Shall I then go into mine house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As thou livest and as my soul liveth, as thy soul liveth, I will not do this thing. Do you remember the introduction to 2 Samuel chapter 7? And it came to pass when the king sat in his house, and the Lord had given him rest round about from all his enemies, that the king said unto Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwelleth within curtains. That was heavy on David's mind a few chapters ago. And now Uriah says to him, I cannot, I cannot go enjoy time with my wife while the Ark of the Covenant and the men of Israel are dwelling in tents behind curtains on the battlefield, sleeping out in the fields. By the way, don't think that that's not without reference to the first verse that reminds you also that David stayed in Jerusalem while everyone else was out at war. How desperate David must have been to escape what he had done. Here's David, who can't stay away from another man's wife, and not just another man, his neighbor, one of his loyal soldiers, one of his elite forces, elite fighting men, mighty warriors. And Uriah, because he intends to return to the battle, and because he knows that intercourse with his wife would prevent his speedy return, stays away from his wife out of dedication to duty. Is she beautiful? Absolutely. Is she Uriah's? Absolutely. Does Uriah love her? Definitely. But he puts duty before pleasure. And David does the opposite. So not only has David lost control of the situation and lost control over his soldier, but all of this is caused by David's lack of control, loss of control over his sexual appetites. And that's not all. It soon becomes apparent that Uriah has more self-control when he's drunk than David does when he's sober. Because David can't even have his way with Uriah when Uriah is drunk. David has lost control. He lost control with Bathsheba. He lost control of the situation because Bathsheba's pregnant. He lost control of Uriah. There are a couple of points to make from David's desperation. First of all, sin always gives the illusion of control. <coughs> When you are in sin, you feel like you are in control. You feel like you are in charge. It's one of Satan's favorite tricks. The way that he will make you feel like you are the man. Because
because you're doing this thing that is wicked and shouldn't be done. Sin always gives the illusion of control. But in reality, when you, when you indulge a lust, sin is getting control of you. And once the sin has been committed, not only is the pleasure of the sin gone, the pleasure of the sin is the most elusive part of the sin. The pleasure of the sin is an escape artist. You think that the sin will give you that pleasure. As soon as you get the sin, the pleasure is gone. Not only does that pleasure escape and leave and leave you, but the sense of control goes along with it as well. Once the sin has been committed, the sense of control is gone as well. Because once you've sinned, you lose control of the consequences. You can't control that. And that's the point here. David can control circumstances. David can control people. David, to a large extent, has control in his kingdom. But he cannot control the consequences. <coughs> That's what the Bible means when it says, be sure your sin will find you out. Trying to cover your sin is like trying to clear smoke out of your house. If you had a fire in your house, it's gonna have to be treated. Your house is full of smoke, the smoke damage, you see it on the walls. You can't just get rid of it. Even after you get rid of the smoke, and chasing the smoke out of your house is a challenge. I know because I've had people that cook in my house and it caused smoke. <laughs> I'm not gonna name names or anything, I'm just gonna say that this sort of thing has happened in the past in our home. And um, you know, you can take the batteries out of the fire, um, fire alarms and that at least saves on the noise. But chasing the, the cloud of smoke out of the house is not so easy. And you know, long after the, the uh, smoke itself is cleared, the smell from the smoke still lingers. It's like trying to sweep a lake into a dustpan. I mean, you, you can get water in the dustpan every time, but the lake is still full. It's one of those things, once you spill it, you can't get it all back in. You know, you get one of those packages from Amazon. It's one of those new cultural phenomenons. The excitement of the Amazon truck. He pulls down your street and you're thinking, oh, does he have something for me? <laughs> and then you open the box. Now, you know, there are many things I do not admire about Chinese products, but Chinese ability to pack a box <laughs> has got to be one of the wonders of the world. Because when you, when they pack a box, I don't know how they do it, 
But I know this, that when I pull it out of the box, I can never get it back in the box, ever. I can never give all the stuff that they had in that box back in there. I can't do it. You know, Pandora opens her box and the bees escape and there's no getting them back. And that's the way it is with your sin. There's no bringing it back. There's no corralling it. There's no gathering it and getting it under control. This is why the Bible says, be sure your sin will find you out. The Bible does not say that God will find you out, though he does see. The Bible doesn't say that your parents will find you out or your neighbor will find you out. The Bible says, be sure your sin will find you out. See, that's the thing about sin. We pursue it for the pleasure that it promises. And when we finally get the sin, the pleasure is gone. The control, the sense of control is gone. When we finally get the sin, now we have the consequences. The sin is, in most cases, its own punishment. The sin is. The sin itself punishes you. But of course, all of this made David more desperate. When David can't make plan A work, he launches plan B. Once again, David is in control. That seems to be the point. In the ultimate act of betrayal, David writes out Uriah's death order, seals it, and sends it by Uriah's hand. I, you know, again, it's one of those things, you read this story and you think, how terrible, how awful. To send a man's death warrant by the man's hand, and it would be different if the man were a convict. But Uriah is innocent, naive, of what David has done. And David sends, by the hand of Uriah, Uriah's death warrant. Some have wondered whether or not Uriah knew what David had done and meant to spoil it by just saying, I'm not going to help in this. But I say it doesn't really make the story any better. Certainly, if that was the case, God could have told us that. Wouldn't be hard. But the narrator presents all of this with Uriah as the innocent, naive victim. <coughs> and David, remember David, the Hesed king? David, the ruthless, heartless perpetrator. Uriah demonstrates more control of his glands and more nobility than David. Uriah holds higher ideals than David. Knowingly or unknowingly, wittingly or unwittingly, he foils David's scheme. Because David manages to get Uriah killed. But there is a terrible failure in David's success. Because in the end, what really matters to David 
Just think Uriah dies. Because when Uriah dies, in David's mind, he's in control. He takes Bathsheba as his wife after the appropriate period of mourning is past, and none is the wiser. And Joab, by the way, is glad to accommodate. Doesn't it seem that Joab knows what's up? I mean, David sent to Joab to send me Uriah. And David told Joab to put him in the hottest part of the battle and then retreat and withdraw from him. And Joab, when he sent the message back that Uriah was dead, made sure that he included a lot of details that would make David angry, intending to get his dander up, and then deliver the message so that it could be known that what appeased David, what placated him, was the death of Uriah. Yeah, Joab knows, and Joab is happy to accommodate. But the point is, Uriah died. In fact, the passage mentions this fact as often as it mentions that Uriah didn't go home. The instruction in his death warrant was, Set ye Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle, and retire ye from him, that he may be smitten and die. And when the deed was done, the verse says, And the men of the city went out and fought with Joab, and there fell some of the people, the servants of David, and Uriah the Hittite died also. And when Joab anticipated that David would be angry at the way the battle went, at the way he conducted the battle, he told the messenger to save this little bit of news for the very end. Thy servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And when the messenger delivered the news to David, he said, And the shooter shot from off the wall upon thy servants, and some of the king's servants be dead, and thy servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And then the news reached Bathsheba in verse 26, and when the wife of Uriah, by the way, notice that's what she's called. The wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead. She mourned for her husband. Five times the death of Uriah is mentioned in this passage. All very businesslike, all very official. Everything by the rules. Whether or not David was angry with Joab for taking a risk by approaching near the city, I can't say. By the way, Joab uh, anticipates that David will be angry with him and will remind him that Abimelech, the son of Jerubbesheth, was killed by a woman from the top of him. That Abimelech is from the book of Judges and Jerubbesheth is Jerubbaal, also known as Gideon, so the son of Gideon, Abimelech, that was killed by a piece of millstone dropped from the... So there's a historic reference in this thing. Again, there's, there's, this is all done with the utmost respect for procedure. 